Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next Wonder Podcast. I am so excited for this next guest. Bridget Schulte is the author of the New York Times bestselling book on time pressure called Overwhelmed. Subtitle is Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. It was named one of the notable books of the year by the Washington Post and NPR and won several other nonfiction awards. She has spoken all over the world about time, productivity, the causes and consequences of our unsustainable always-on culture, and how to make time for work, love, and play. She was an award-winning journalist for the Washington Post and the Washington Post Magazine, and part of the team that won the 2008 Pulitzer Prize. She now serves as the founding director of the Good Life Initiative at the nonpartisan think tank New America and director of the Better Life Lab, both of which seek to elevate the conversation, explore transformative solutions, and highlight how work life and gender equity issues are key to excellence, productivity, and innovation, as well as a full, authentic, and meaningful life for everyone. She has been quoted in numerous media outlets and appeared on numerous TV and radio shows. I mean, the list is unbelievable. NBC Nightly News, Good Morning America, BBC World News, and NPR's Fresh Air, and that's just to name a few of them. One of my daughters actually boldly reached out to her last May, um, which I had no idea about. And Bridget told me she was unable to say no to a child's request like that. And um, so unbelievably, here we go with this remarkable and brilliant author and journalist researcher Bridget Schulte. Well, welcome. I'm so I'm so happy to have you join me. My women's group in 2015, at that time we were a group of women physicians and we sat around, we read your book and talked about it and I cannot tell you we all of us found ourselves on so many of your pages. So, thank you for this gift of your book. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. It's a uh, it's wonderful to see that it has a life in the world, you know, that that all of that pain and, uh, and research really, uh, you know, is is making a difference. So that's really great to hear. Yes. Oh, well, you know, you're one of those, you know, brilliant thinkers, authors, researchers who's able to describe and record exactly how I'm feeling <laughs> before, but before I understood it myself, you know, and so uh, it is, it's really been incredible. And I, I reread it, you know, for this discussion, um, at least kind of, it was more of a skim this time, but I had it highlighted, you know, in a thousand places. So it, it spoke to me just as much five years later as it did when I first read it. So um, anyway, well, I'm so, I'm just so honored to have well, it. I, I also have to say, you know, and this is part of the sort of the driving force of the book is that I was totally, you know, just caught up in the swirl and you're just so busy and you're running so fast and hard and you're not getting much sleep. And so I didn't understand what was going on. And I just really thought that it was all me and that there was something wrong with me or that there, I just wasn't good enough, smart enough, strong enough, had enough willpower. I was too lazy, whatever it was, or too neurotic uh, that I really thought that it was all sort of a, a personal failing. And um, honestly, the, the, the ability to write that book was a huge gift because it enabled me to step outside of the swirl. You know, I was able to take a book leave. I had a fellowship. You know, we did go into credit card debt, but, you know, I had the time <laughs> and sort of the structure that I really needed 
to just dive into this and use my skills as a reporter and sort of an investigative reporter into modern life, particularly yes. for women, particularly for women with children. Like, why is it so difficult? And that's really, you know, I, I, that just completely changed my life once I had that experience. I tried to go back to being a, a newspaper reporter and there, there was just such a clash where newspapers are interested in the immediate and what's happening tomorrow and what's breaking. I was so much more interested in sort of this longer term story of like, how did we get here and how do we get out of here? Like, what's the way forward oh. so that all people can have a more human experience. Like, so it's not so crazy so that we can support families so that men can be caregivers so that it wouldn't be weird to have a woman president. You know, how do we get to a more human future? And that's really yes. what propelled me to the better life lab and has propelled me, you know, continue the journey continues, you know, as I work on the next book. Okay. Okay. Can you tell me what the next book is going to be? I'm already, I'm, I can't wait to hear yeah. or to read rather. Yeah. Well, so, and I have to say, uh, you know, with COVID, like everything else, it's, uh, it's upended my plans. But after I wrote Overwhelmed, it was so clear to me, you know, that what needed to change were workplace cultures, public policy, and cultural attitudes, cultural expectations around gender. Well, public policy, you know, in this country, things are really frozen. You know, unfortunately, we're very politically divided. And and there's also so, you know, you know, there's great policy that may not make any difference, may not change the culture. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But I became I became so convinced that our work culture, the way that we work, the way we've set it up, the systems, the expectations around it, that drives so much overwhelm and not just for women and not just for women with children, but for everybody. And so um, in the last couple of years, I've really started reporting it and came across some really astounding research that work itself creates so much, those sort of the stress from work um, you know, we tend to think of, of sort of work-related injuries as like falling off a ladder or, you know, like working in a coal mine. But, but modern work stress, the stress that comes from the modern way of work has actually become the fifth leading cause of death in the United States. Creates so much, you know, chronic ill health. And so I just thought, well, wow, I need to look into that and really understand that from kind of the gendered lens of, again, you know, why are we doing this to ourselves? And, and so it's really a, a look at work and work culture. It was going to be called overworked, but then after the, after COVID hit, and there's so many people who are unemployed, you can't call it overworked, you know, because overworked, it, it, it was to capture both long work hours and the white collar professional classes, which are really crazy absolutely crazy and unlike any other country in the world. But then also on the flip side, we have jobs that don't pay enough to live. And so you have overworked by people cobbling together different jobs or side hustles that make life really impossible, you know, on, on either end of the spectrum, you know, impossible to, for, you know, for your own health and well-being, but impossible for that kind of human future kind of polices people back into those gendered care and, and work roles. Um, and, and, and yet, our, our structure doesn't allow you, you know, there isn't enough money really for most people to have like that one wage earner, you know, which was sort of a, an artifact of the second world war, that that was a short period in American history where we had breadwinner homemaker families, but not for everybody, you know, mainly for middle and upper middle-class families. We forget that. 
you know, and so there, we just don't have that structure anymore. Most most families really need two earners. So how is it that we don't have the structures that really enable families to to live well? And uh, so that's what the, the so the book now is called Work in Progress, um, and it's really looking at change agents because if all I was going to do was write about how terrible work was, I'd be too depressed. <laughs> and I didn't want to write it, and so I really wanted to look for hope. Like, well, who's changing it? How are they? So it's the sort of the subtitle. The working subtitle is the quest to transform the dysfunctional American way of work. And I'm finding really inspiring people who, against all sorts of odds, are really trying to, you know, change things large and small, change huge systems, change big cultures, and, you know, and even look for for small interventions on sort of like the team and organization level. So, so it's really looking at work, but it's not a business book, so to speak, because it's really trying to get into gender and meaning and quality of life, basically, you know, the, the, yes. the continued search for the good life. Oh, my gosh, I that, that brings up so many things, you know, that you touch on in Overwhelmed. And one of them being that I that I found to be fascinating was a, a an interesting reminder that women did not join the workforce by choice. And I think that's something that we think, oh, it's so wonderful now. The women's lib movement allowed us to be in the workplace, but it it was not a choice. Yeah. Um, would you go into um, also the discussion that I'd love for you to just briefly cover would be the predictions of the 1930s and 50s, the, the 1930s through 50s where we were going to have this greatly reduced work week and how the opposite has happened. And just tell us your thoughts on that ideal, that ideal worker. And maybe also if you want to speak to this, women really didn't choose to, to do this. Yeah, yeah, those are great questions. And I, again, all of this was such a revelation to me. And it was surprising. You know, I've got a master's degree. I worked at the Washington Post. I mean, you'd think that I was supposed to be educated and, and know all this stuff. And it was shocking to me that this was not more part of our kind of national consciousness, that we didn't know this. So a lot of what I felt as a working mother was a huge amount of guilt because there was this language around choice. Well, you chose to be a working mother. Therefore, if you're suffering or if you're not figuring out how to make it work or you're feeling inadequate, it is your fault. It is your choice because you could make another choice. You could make the quote unquote natural or the quote unquote right choice and stay home and be dedicate yourself to being this ideal mother. So, uh, so a lot of my guilt came from this notion that it was a choice. And so it was such a revelation when you read a lot of really interesting and uh, insightful economic histories, economic literature. I would point anyone to Heather Boucher, who wrote, she's a brilliant economist. She wrote a book called Finding Time. She's now going to be um, one of the economic advisors in the new, the incoming Biden administration. But she just sort of like, you know, I, she just like blew my mind when I read this, that when you look historically that that in the early 1970s, there were a couple different kind of large trends happening all at the same time. And one that we do know about is that wages started to stagnate for, you know, sort of the idea of having a good job, you know, with a high school degree that ended up that just went away. Um, manufacturing jobs went overseas. Um, you know, this is it's, it's the precursor to an awful lot of the political strife now you know, this sense, uh, this widening divide between people with college and high school degrees, this widening divide in the sense of, of opportunity for the future. And if you were in that kind of, you know, high school era, you know, uh, 
you just don't have the, you know, the opportunities, you don't have the income, um, you know, to, to make the, uh, the kind of life that you could have in the 60s and 70s, where you could have a really good solid middle class life if, it, you know, with a high school degree, you could be a car salesperson or, you know, work in the, you know, um, the, the factory or the plant. Well, they all went away. And so what ended up happening is that um, pretty much in the early 1970s, with those wages, you know, those good jobs leaving, with the wages declining, families needed a second earner just to maintain the same standard of living. And that's what we, that's what has been lost in all of the, you know, truly, and all of the national discussion and all of our kind of consciousness about this, that, uh, and this is where Heather Boucher's work is so important, that if women had not entered the workforce en masse in the early 1970s, so many more families would have fallen into poverty. So it was women who really shored up families not to, you know, and I think part of the choice rhetoric is like, oh, women went to work so you could have a bigger house, so you could buy a second car. And that's, you know, it's it's another way of kind of like um, blame the woman or, you know, kind of punish the woman backlash, whatever you want to call it. That simply is not true for the majority of women who entered the workforce. They simply needed to work to survive, to support their families. So then, so, you know, so that's a really important thing to remember. And so to the second part of your question, you know, again, it's, it's shocking that this is not part of our understanding of the way things work. But uh, in the, in the mid 20th century, uh, you know, it, there were all these studies that showed how more, how we were becoming so much more productive in the United States. And, and so there was this notion that, um, you know, we would be working and, providing for ourselves enough, you know, that we would get the basics and then a little bit more if we worked, you know, maybe four days a week, or we worked until we were in our 30s, and then we could retire. There was this prediction of this coming age of leisure, that we were all going to have all of this time. And so what people were worried about is like, oh, my God, what are people going to do with all this free time, you know, and they were worried about there'd be a crime wave, or, you know, like, what were we going to do? You know, and then there were other people saying, well, this would be a great opportunity for us to develop, you know, evolve, continue to evolve as humans, you know, that that civilization is created in those moments of leisure and art and history and imagination and creativity. And so there was a real debate about what this coming age of leisure was going to bring. And it's so interesting. I talked to a leisure researcher, I interviewed him for my book, his name is Ben Honeycutt in Iowa. And, uh, and he just said, I, he, you know, and I just said, well, what happened? He goes, what the hell happened? That's what I've been <laughs> trying to spend my academic career trying to figure out. So this age of leisure just evaporated. Um, it, you know, and now what you have are people working ever longer hours, you know, in the, the white collar world, we work among the longest hours of any advanced economy. You've got, you know, precarious, unpredictable, but also lots of hours in the lower, you know, hourly hourly workers. I mean, we actually have a category called low wage work. I mean, think about that, you know, in the richest country on earth, really, we're going to have a category called low wage work. And now we're worried that they're going to be all automated out. And so what are they going to do? You know, so I think, uh, so that's the other thing I think that we all need to, to recognize they're tied. Those two, those two trends are tied because the idea that we would have this coming age of leisure was tied to the notion that we would continue to reap the benefit or the, the rewards of our work. And that also broke down in the 1970s. And when wages start to, started to stagnate, what you see in all sorts of economic trend lines is that the, the sort of the fruits of our labor, 
ended up going to the 1%. And that is the beginning of some really grotesque inequality that we've got now. Mm. And so now what you've got are people working harder and harder for less and less. And it doesn't get you what it used to. And it doesn't support you the way that it used to. And then you see people who can buy islands and fly around in private planes. And it just fuels resentment understandably. And so th- this is part of what, you know, there there are beginning calls. And this is part of what I'm also researching in my book for kind of rethinking capitalism. You know, it's not like, you know, people are, they think the opposite of capitalism is socialism, ah, you know, and then it's going to be terrible and yes. it's going to be Stalin and there'll be purges and it'll be mind control from the state. Those are terrible examples of, you know, state sponsored, everything going wrong. But you can think about how do you preserve the dynamism of capitalism, the creativity, the, the you know, the that that unleashes the entrepreneurial spirit, so to speak. How do you do that, but have a human face to it? How do we think about redesigning capitalism? So it's human-centered capitalism. So it's about well-being at the center, you know. And so these are uh, these are conversations we're just beginning to have. And even, you know, Wall Street is beginning to have these because Right now, in the middle of the pandemic, we have the most bizarre thing where you've got a stock market that's like exploding, and then you've got people thinking, oh, my 401k is doing okay, so we're, we're thinking in these kind of small, selfish terms. And at the same time, you've got people out of work, you've got food pantries that are uh, you know, running out of food. So there's this real disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street that is just honestly the sort of the... the unfortunate and natural evolution of of, uh, of really what happened in that really critical moment in the early 70s when we made some choices, you know, and then it, it accelerated in the 1980s uh, in the Reagan years with the idea that you would get rid of a, a social safety net with the idea that the free market could answer everything. And so now we're sort of in the worst of all worlds where, you know, we've got this economic inequality, we've got work that doesn't really work anymore for most people. And then there's really no safety net to help you bounce back if you fall. So uh, we are in, you know, uh, you know, if the 20th century was the American century. In the 21st century, we really, we really need to rethink who and what we are and how we operate if we want to maintain, uh, you know, that that standard, uh, you know, of of living that that sense of uh, anybody can make it here. That yes, the American, American dream. dream. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. One of your um, recent podcasts, you have a wonderful podcast that it's called the Better Life Lab. And I guess the recent conversations start with the word crisis conversation. So one of one one that was in mid-November, the title was Setting Working Moms Back a Generation. Yeah. And you quote a woman, Elizabeth Gedmark, who said, um, and this is I'm sort of changing a little bit, just talking about women in the workplace. You said it's not she said it's not a question of whether women are set back in the workplace. It's a question of how far back we will go. 10, 15, you know, or 20 years. Would you discuss that concern? And could the pandemic really have long-term consequences for women in the workforce? Yeah, I, that's such a great question. Yeah, that's so Elizabeth Gedmark, she's at A Better Balance, which is a wonderful organization um, that's really uh, like the Better Life Lab working for work family justice. So um, uh, when I saw that, that it was just one of those, those quotes, it just really hit me. It's not a matter of you know, whether women are going to be back yes, or how far. Yes, but how much? So when you look at what's happening with COVID, I think there are three things to really keep in mind that are, that, are, that are both troubling and interesting. 
And one is that there's no doubt that women have been much more affected by the shutdowns because women are overrepresented in the hospitality and the retail industry, the kind of quote unquote low wage jobs out there that mm. so many women are in. So they have been much more impacted, uh, especially early on by the layoffs. Uh, you know, so that's that, you know, that's a huge impact right directly on women, particularly single moms, you know, a huge impact. Mm. And there was some bailout, you know, some help. But um, I think people need to recognize that a lot of that was temporary. A lot of it was not sufficient and it ran out. So if you were an unemployed single mom, like I've interviewed many of them, um, you got $600, uh, $600 a week sort of to help you through to try to, you know, because there were no jobs. Or if you were furloughed, you, weren't, sure. you couldn't look for another job. And so this was basically just to help you hang on until you could find another job. Well, that expired July 31st. That was a very short-term measure. We've got an emergency paid family and paid sick leave. But the, it was horrendous. At the very last minute, the Republicans decided to uh, you know, rewrite it so that you it would only affect people who work for companies with fewer than 500 employees. Well, that's, you know, you basically then have just cut out all of those hourly workers who work for Walmart and Amazon and, you know, all of the essential workers that we rely on. They got no paid sick days. And so then you were putting people in a horrendous position where they had to choose between earning money to, you know, and not very much of it to try to make ends meet or go to work sick or, or you know, potentially expose themselves. So, uh, you know, so, so I think that's important to remember that we did not have an adequate response that would have helped all people, but particularly women, particularly single mothers. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is to recognize that when schools and childcare centers shut down, and then some of them would reopen, but would take fewer kids, or they'd open and then they'd close. What ended up happening, the surveys were really clear that women were the ones that ended up picking up the burden of childcare at home, of homeschooling at home, if you were lucky enough to be able to continue to work at home. Uh, you know, how essential workers ha have managed to do it, I don't think any of us knows, you know, the, the strains right. and the stresses of trying to like make that work. And, and I think it really shows that, you know, there's not only loneliness and isolation for kids, you know, but for many of them, if you, you know, they are just, the families are really stretched beyond the point of reason, um, you know, particularly those that don't have resources and means. So that's the second thing is that women, um, you know, I think in that sort of second bucket of women taking up more of the childcare and homeschooling, all you had to do is look at the unemployment figures that came out in September. It was outrageous. A million people were out of work and 80% of them were women. And it was mm -hmm. not surprising to me because September, what happened? School started up again, you know? And so, sure. uh, so many women just, you, you read anecdotally over and over again, I couldn't do it. I just, there was no way that I could do it. Um, and so families, um, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out how to make it work financially. So, so I'll come back to that in a second. But, you know, the third thing to keep in mind, and this is where it's interesting, is that, you know, women still, even when they work full time, if you look at the time diary data, are still doing about twice the amount of housework, twice the amount of, of childcare that men are, even when they earn more money. So that women culturally uh, are still expected to be the primary or the default caregiver. Um, you know, that's reinforced by work cultures that you, you'd mentioned earlier. I, I write about the ideal worker that's, that my, you know, friend and mentor, and I just worship her, <laughs> Joan Williams at the 
Center for Work-Life Law, she's the one that came up with this idea that our work cultures reward kind of total work devotion, that you'll get promoted, you're, you're seen as the best worker if you work all the time. Uh, which is very difficult if you also want to try to have a family, you know, if you want to try to uh, raise children, which, you know, isn't that isn't that part of like, <laughs> like the human experience, right. maybe human experience, preserving the species, you know, <laughs> honest to God, isn't that honestly, I, you know, one of the things that's been interesting is seeing how there are so many people who look at, um, you know, national security, they see, you know, they see these work family issues as national security issues, because if you do not create the next generation, what kind of nation do you have? You know, you don't have a society, you don't have a civilization. You've got so many young people today who think that they simply cannot have children because they don't know how to do it. That should be an enormous wake up call to all these old white fart men on Congress who don't seem to care or don't seem to do anything about it. Can you tell? I'm sorry, I get a little frustrated by this. Um, I love it. You know, uh, it, and I say that because if you, again, you look at the bailout, um, the, it, early on, there was $3 million for childcare, which is, or $3 billion, sorry, which is not nothing, but that's what Delta Airlines got, you know? And then you had so many childcare advocates, early care and learning um, experts say, we need at least $50 billion just to get us through the pandemic. And then we need to build uh, an infrastructure. We've got such a broken infrastructure here where parents are paying way too much for childcare. Childcare workers earn poverty wages. It's very difficult to find quality care. It's all because the market doesn't work for childcare. You know, it's we need to think about it like school and we need to invest in it like public education. So, so they've asked for $50 billion and there's been nothing nothing since that early infusion in April. So it's another indication of how out of touch our leaders are with how how difficult life is that, that people live on a day-to-day basis. But the, the third bucket that I want to go back to that I do think is worth watching is that even though women, um, you know, have prior to COVID uh, were the primary caregivers and certainly in COVID are bearing the brunt of most of the care, you have so many more men who are also working at home for the first time, who are also working remotely. You also have so many men who are the partners or husbands of healthcare workers. 75% of healthcare workers are women and they're on the front lines. They're the essential workers. So we've been doing some really interesting interviews and research about how this is impacting men. And I think that this is something that will bear looking at over the long term, because there's no doubt that once men uh, see how much work it is to, you know, to take care of children. Once men begin to do it, it ends up changing their attitudes and changing their lives. Uh, there's a big report that I'm, I just finished writing that will be coming out hopefully in the next few weeks that shows that, that, it's, it, that men tend to value care in the abstract, but once they have that experience, that is life-changing. And so mm-hmm. that's something that I think will bear watching in the long term. There's no doubt that women are going to be set back But there's also no doubt, you know, as we know now from the early 1970s, that the women who have opted, or I don't want to say opted, that's sort of the the narratives that opted out, I would say that are forced out, who have been pushed Mm -hmm. out, there's no doubt they're going to have to go back in. You know, they're going to have to find work because unfortunately, we make it really difficult for these for families in the United States. And, And so you need those two incomes to survive. So at some point, they're going to have to go back. And then it would be very interesting to see, is there going to be a recalibration of how people share um, the unpaid labor at home? 
And I think that's an open question. Uh, right now, it's anecdotal. Um, a, a lot of the stories, there, there is some survey data that uh, Dan Carlson and Richard Petz and some other academics have done that's, that hints at, at something very interesting, which is that um, even though women are doing more uh, in the in the pandemic, men are also doing more, which means that, that that couples, many couples, are moving in the direction of more sharing. So, so anyway, I, all of that is to keep in mind that it is really bad for women right now. It is going to be bad for women for a while, but in the long term, there could be some very interesting outcomes. Men could become more involved, and then the fact that there are that so many companies that had always resisted remote work that had always resisted flexible work well that's the only way people have been able to survive and they've been fairly productive and they've done quite well since march and now you've got companies saying we're never going to go back we're always going to stay virtual or we're we're going to have like um limited um you know in person so you could kind of live from wherever you could work from wherever my deputy moved to utah you know and we're <laughs> We're more productive than ever at the Better Life Lab. So I think that, you know, again, when you look long term, there are some interesting things that uh, that could make it, I don't want to say mitigate, because there's no doubt that women have been suffering far more in the pandemic. Um, but I think that there are going to be some interesting long term trends to keep an eye on. Another person from that that I've heard you interview is this that Jessica Colarco. She's an associate professor of sociology at Indiana University. And then she wrote this article, My Husband Thinks I'm Crazy. <laughs> and, it's, yeah. and I just, and this was about COVID. And I, I mean, I actually looked up the research and it's this, it's this very formal research article. And, you know, but with this title, that's just hysterical. And essentially her, her conclusion is that the pandemic has exacerbated longstanding sources of, of conflict in couples. And a lot of it related to insufficient support with parenting. And it also created new conflict r- related to the partner dismissing the woman's COVID concerns. Mm-hmm. And that led me, you know, in the article itself, she quotes this 10% of married people are likely to separate. It's not that they have separated, but they are likely to separate because of the pandemic. 30% are experiencing frequent, more frequent arguments with their partners. And, you know, I'm in this incredibly privileged position where my kids are at a private school that is in person. And, you know, and I I know it is, it's really, I'm realizing that I'm in like 0.000, I don't even know what percent on this, but I live in a community where, where folks are prioritizing bars and indoor dining Mm. over the public schools being in school it tells and you a lot of better priorities, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't it? Yeah. And so is that, is that something that, you know, of course that's sort of just something you're thinking about as well. It's such a big Absolutely. part of this. Absolutely. Yeah. You really, you know, you, you want to do more than give lip service to gender equality. You know, honestly, you, you, you hear that from businesses, you hear that from leaders, you know, you would absolutely put more restrictions on bars and, uh, restaurants where it is clear now we have evidence that that is how the pandemic that is how the virus spread. Yes, and you would do a whole lot more to try to shore up childcare and schools. And you would give parents an awful lot more support. You would you, you know you would make different choices if you really prioritized families and if you really prioritized gender equality. So to me, unfortunately, I have seen this you know ever since I've really since I started working on this book and have just been really diving into this subject. There is a lot of lip service in this country, and there is not a whole lot of of action that backs it up. And I'm mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately we are seeing this writ large with the pandemic. 
And this is this is why it is so important that you elect people that look more like the, the rest of the country. It's it, mm-hmm. I think it's you know uh, it's so important. Uh, it's it's one of the reasons why you see you know kind of at the local level, uh, people are much more likely to be supportive. You know, look at Florida. Uh, they sent uh, Republicans who tend to be, um, you know, very free market and um, government doesn't have a role, you know, limited government. It used to be limited government. I'm not quite sure what Republicans believe these days. Um, uh, and I and I say that in all honesty. When No, I mean, they didn't have a, didn't platform. Have a platform. I mean, they didn't have, there was no platform. They said whatever, right. Whatever Trump wants is what we support. And and I say this as, you know, my parents were Republican, you know, I, I have I love the friends, yeah. you know, and I, it used to mean something. Mark Hatfield was a, from Oregon. He was a wonderful Republican, you know. So uh, at any rate, you have people who have sent, you know, to, sent to Washington kind of more ideologues. But locally, they passed a, you know, $15 living, you know, living wage bill, um, you know, Colorado, um, you know, work, the, the state legislature, which is controlled by Republicans, they rejected paid family leave five times. And then when it was put to voters, it passed overwhelmingly. So when it, it, this is where it's so important that people, you know, unfortunately, we get so busy that we don't pay attention and we don't get involved in civic life. It is really important that we do, because until we get people who listen to us, who look like us, who live like us, we're going to continue to have this this divide of, you know, um, lawmakers and politicians who are much more responsive to people who give them a lot of money to stay in power. And who are the people that have a lot of money to stay in power? They're the people who've been really reaping the benefits of this economic inequality. And so we really need to be rethinking large systems in this country. Oh, one, and such a fascinating answer. So this is going back to your ideal um, mother and expectations. The The question is, um, and this really honestly comes from my husband, who I love, um, who <laughs> loves to play devil's advocate. And he is so in some... <laughs> he devil advocates me all the time, which is great. I mean, oh, it's great. And it's frustrating. He is convinced that a lot of these things women women put on themselves that we have this, that men, if, if we allowed them to help, if we ask them to help, which I love the, the I mean, the fact that I'm actually even use, using that expression, like allowing them to help mm-hmm. as though this is, you know, my life, my children, my right. house, and he's helping me, you know, that we wouldn't be in the situation that let's say many of us find ourselves. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? How much of this ideal working mother are we putting on ourselves? Yeah. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's an important question. Um, and I, and it's a complicated one, you know? Um, so, so, so let's, let's break it down. Um, (laughs) it's very interesting that the, the words that your husband uses are the words that a lot of men use. Oh, let me help you. I will be your helper. You know, so again, that that worldview assumes that women are the primary caregiver. And so I will offload a few tasks if you give them to me. Well, what that does not do, that does not create a sense of partnership, that does not offload any of the mental load that you then are somehow responsible and then you'll delegate a task and then it's more work because then you got to make sure, did you do it? Did you do it well? You know, and then you, then you become the nag, right? 
And so uh, honestly, when, when my husband were, and I were, when our kids were young and it was sort of in the worst of it, I was just like, ah, too much work. I'll just do it all, you know? So, yes. Uh-huh. You know, so, so part of that, I think what your husband and other men need to recognize is that we're all part of this larger worldview that, and the, in this larger worldview, you know, well, women, well, they, you know, my husband's view is, well, well, I don't know, women breastfeed, so shouldn't you be in charge, you know? And so it sets the stage early on that women either should be or are in charge or that we've got this quote unquote maternal instinct. And we should just, we just obviously know what to do and that men don't. And so we're in charge and they'll quote unquote help. And so what science has shown is that that's actually really not true, that, that there is no such thing as a maternal instinct, that what women have always had is time. They've always had that, that, that time to, you know, through breastfeeding or whatever, to bond, to learn, you know, so it's not so much that it's like you, and I certainly didn't. I, I was like, I had this little baby. It's like, oh my God, what do I do now? You know? <laughs> Uh, so the thing is men have those nurturing instincts as well. The, the science is really clear about that. Their body physiologically changes when they become fathers, their testosterone levels drop. They create more of the, uh, you know, oxytocin, the bonding hormone, the love hormone, their brain physiology changes. They too have, if you would call it a paternal or a nurturing instinct, what they have not had, particularly since the dawn of the industrial age, they have not had the time to develop those competencies, to develop those bonds. You know, so so that's one thing to remember is that we're all kind of part of this, this story that isn't really true, that women are the natural caregivers. And so men will quote unquote help. So, so the other thing to, you know, to recognize is that, you know, how do I say this? Women didn't create the ideal mother, but I think women feel, feel very, um, you know, like anything, when you don't have time to think about something, when that's the expectation, that's the expectation you're trying to live up to. And the ideal mother you know, in literature, in, uh, you know, kind of received cultural wisdom is somebody who is totally devoted to their children, self-sacrificing, will do anything for their kids. You know, there was a a Victorian era poem called The Angel in the House, where you, you know, you eat the burnt crust of toast and you take the the worst (laughs) piece of meat after everybody else has eaten. And you basically are this dust mop in the corner and that that's supposed to be the ideal mother. You know, so, so those messages are powerful and they've been broadcast for a long time. I mean, look at Disney for God's yes. sake, there aren't any mothers in Disney. You know what I mean? It's like they're, they're the ideal mother, I guess, you know, she's either amazing or she's dead, you know, because then the adventure <laughs> starts. So, you know, so, so do women do this to themselves? Yes and no, but it's like, it's, it's like a non-choice choice, you know, because mm-hmm. this is what the mm-hmm. expectation is. You know, I think what your husband needs to recognize is there is an awful lot of pushback and a lot of blowback if you don't act that way. I mean, think about it. All of the literature of the last couple decades of the selfish working mother, you know, because you weren't sacrificing and putting your children first, although women really were, they were just trying to, they were, you know, burning the candle at both ends and out the middle to try mm-hmm. to do it all, mm-hmm. um, you know. That's not necessarily a, a choice. That's sort of a uh, that's sort of trying to live a cultural imperative. So that said, so what do you do? I think the the most important thing at this point is to recognize that there are those powerful factors out there, 
and for you to work with your spouse, your partner as a partner, you know, when you look at same sex couples, one of the most interesting things about them, there's, you know, there's difficulties and there's controversies just like there are with, you know, different sex couples. The difference is they can't make those same gendered assumptions about who does what. So Mm. they have to talk. They have to figure it out together. They have to work it out. And so that is probably the most important thing that different sex couples can learn from same sex couples is to talk, to like just put all of it out there, put your assumptions out there, look at them and decide, well, do we want to be the ideal worker and ideal mother? Do we want to create something different? What works for us as a family? and begin to create your own sort of reality, if you will, because that's, that's mm-hmm. where you are. That's where you live. And, and, uh, and so I think men need to recognize that there are a lot of pressures on women. I mean, and I, I wrote about them in the book, you know, that I felt like I had yeah. to bring the uh, home baked goods to the bake, you know, the bake sale for the band, you know, or the, yeah. you know, the birthday party or whatever. So men do not have those same pressures and expectations um, so it's easier for them to say, well, you're being silly, you know, just just uh, disregard it. But women, uh, you know, there's been a lot of judgment because, you know, think about it. Um, going back to this narrative of choice, if you feel like there's a choice and, you know, you're a working mother and you see women who are not working mothers, there is there is sort of a conflict of identity right there because everybody's worried mm-hmm. did I make the right choice. I'm not sure if I did. And so then there's kind of judgment. That's sort of, that was sort of the, the, the basis of the mommy wars, if you will. You know, and really, honestly, what we need to stop doing is judging each other as women, you know, being angry at men. And we all need to work together to say we are living in systems that do not support the, the, the lives that we want to create. And how do we change the system? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we get the public policies that really support working families? How do we change workplaces to recognize that all workers have either caregiving or lives? They want to live full lives. They don't want to just be workers. Yes. And that we want work to be able to support the kinds of lives we choose to live, which includes time for love and for families. Mm-hmm. And so I think, that, you know, unfortunately, we've been spending a lot of energy judging each other and pointing fingers when, you know, we need to be kind of looking up and out and like, wait a minute, we're kind of dancing this tune that somebody else has been, you know, writing for us and we need to write our own, our own music. Yes. When, one of the terms that you used from the book um, that I've never forgotten is the chameleon mother, where you described um, what exactly what I was doing. And I still do it, where it's this, you're, you shield your work from your children. And so you might work, but then you pretend that you're just a stay-at-home mom and you're there all the time and you want to show up everything and you don't talk about work to friends that don't work and you you don't talk about uh, work to your children. And I, I really changed based on your book, especially to my own children, just to remind her of, wait a minute, I want my daughters to see what I'm doing. Yeah. and. I'm also in a very unique position that I could, we could live off my husband's salary. Mm-hmm. He's a physician. Mm-hmm. We could, we could do that. I, I actually do choose to work. Mm-hmm. And I think with that comes guilt. Like, why am I choosing to work? If I didn't, if I could, if we could live off of a, a one physician salary, why do I choose to work? And it's interesting that the, the, that guilt comes up so much in so many ways. It's just, 
enmeshed in all of these in all these topics. Well, I, wouldn't it be interesting if we could rewrite that narrative and you know and be honest about it? It's like, of course you love your children. Why did the national narrative become if you choose to work that you somehow don't love your children? I mean, yeah. that's ridiculous. Of course you love your children. And what if we change the narrative? It's just like I love yeah. you and you know, and part of loving you is showing you my 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 full humanity. And my full humanity is that I love and care for you. And, you know, these are the things that I love spending time with you. And I do this really cool stuff in, yeah. because I have a, a role to play in, uh, in building the kind of world and society that we want. And I want to create, you know, opportunities for whatever it is that you choose to do with your dreams uh-huh. and your life. And, you know, what if we turned that guilt into... you know, a story of hope and opportunity, Uh, you know, and I think that that's where, that's where we do need to begin to change the narrative in ourselves and in the way that we Mm -hmm. talk to each other. And that it isn't a judgment if somebody else has made a different choice. It's like, I, I, I celebrate that this was the choice that was right for me. And just because I made a different choice doesn't mean you made the wrong one. And this is where, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying before, men have always been expected to work. And so they don't have that same kind of identity clash. And we're in a very interesting period where women, you know, w- women kind of are moving from one to another or doing both. You know, I think that's the other thing we n- need to recognize in the course of human history, you know, women and and men kind of sharing work and sharing the, the life at home, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the same in the same manner is very new. You know, uh, before the Industrial Revolution, we pretty much human hum, human beings were living on farms. I mean, in a way that everybody worked, everybody shared. It was sort of the family business. I, I think we're we need to think that, that we're just kind of going back to that in a different way. You know, and, and remove yeah. some of the guilt that that just because you work does not mean that you love your children any iota less than someone who's mm-hmm. who's made a, a decision to. To, to a different decision. Yeah. Know, they're just yeah. different decisions or different ways of expressing love. You know, one thing that that also reminds me of, you mentioned we're all kind of living in the same world, but I remember from your book, you talked about divergent realities <laughs> where <laughs> women and men, you know, we they actually experience time differently. And so they can even, and this happens to me all the time, you know, we're engaged in the same activity. We're on a family walk. We're having dinner. And I start asking like, well, what's everybody want for dinner tomorrow night? And and what should we do about this? And what about it? And I get this pushback, like, we're trying to have a good time. What do you, what, what's happening here? This is a good time. Yeah. You know, my husband's going to kill me. I really do adore my husband. He's actually a really good sport. So he can actually handle it. You described the, I think you're, the word you use is brain dump. When, is that right? When you, the word, I believe that's the word where you say when you, when a woman has all that stuff swirling around in her, her mind, she actually sits down and writes it all down that that can really help you then maybe go back to your personal, you know, time, your leisure time or whatever that is, and actually not be lost in, in that, the mental load. Yeah. Yeah. You, well, you describe it beautifully. I, I, you know, I call it collie dogging, you know, you're in a moment where it seems nice and you're like, Oh my God, what's in the fridge? Do have you done this? Did you do your homework? What about that? You know, you're kind of collie dogging everybody around. And then the kids are like, leave me alone. You know, my kids are older now. Yeah. So I, you know, 
as they said, my my helicopter has been parked for a while. You know, they're like, you know, no, I'm the helicopter. <laughs> I love that. Um, but I think what's important to re- to recognize here is that women do carry the heavier load at at home. They still do the logistics, the planning. You know. Um, typically they're the ones that, uh, you know, when you, again, you look at research, they're the dads tend to be the fun parent. They will do the non time sensitive tasks, um, sometimes uh, associated with, you know, enrichment or, um, uh, not, not necessarily the day-to-day drudge work who, you know, women are trying to get kids out the door. They're doing the bathing, the feeding, the very time, time pressure tasks Time pressure. They're, they're yeah. finding that, you know, and a lot of the tax, task density, they're very important tasks that you have to do them. Um, they're typically finding the childcare. They're typically finding the play dates. They're typically finding the activities. And then they're keeping track of all of it. You know, I, I hate them, but there's a reason why there's like the busy mom calendar because women typically have taken on not just the physical tasks, but the mental tasks. And then what, what ends up happening, so, so there's that. The other thing that ends up happening is that in the United States and in other countries, there never has been uh, a history or an expectation that women deserve leisure time. You know, when you think about it, uh, you know, actually any, in any culture, um, I did some really interesting research on feminist leisure research. I didn't even know such a thing existed. And that women pretty, you know, routinely around the world feel like they don't deserve leisure time, that they have to earn it. And the only way to earn it is to get to the end of a really long to-do list. You know, and, and we all know that that to-do list never ends. And then you're, so you're, you're keeping the physical to-do list. You got that mental to-do list going. So you can be in that moment that looks like leisure. And then you're thinking about all of that. The other thing that women do is they're trying to regulate everybody's emotional temperature, making sure that everybody's happy. You know, uh, you know, this, this child is frowning, you know, you're somebody described it, you're at the swimming pool and it should be leisure, but you're like the firefighter, you know, like, Oh my God. And where's this kid? And did they eat? And, you know, so it's not, it's not pure leisure time. It's not relaxing for women. Um, So actually there's a term for that. They call it contaminated time. That you are yes. in a moment that should or could be leisure, but your mind is so contaminated, you're not there. You're kind of everywhere and nowhere at once. So, you know, how do you have, you know, how, how do you let that go? So this is where the brain dump comes in. This is the beauty of David Allen. So, um, you know, I, I, got to, I got a chance for like the, the last part of the book to read all this time management research and, you know, how do you do it? And and a couple things that I learned that are probably the smartest thing, and that is you cannot manage time. Don't even try to manage time. What you can manage are your expectations and your priorities for what you do in time. So that's where taking that breath, kind of like disrupting that busyness cycle, just taking a moment to pause and really getting clear, uh, what are my priorities today? What are my priorities this week? You know, and what can I expect to do? And this is hard because human beings, we tend to overestimate what we can do. It's called the planning fallacy. We all do it. And I do it all the time. You should see my list. It's like this week I'm going to do blah, 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 blah. And I get to Friday. I'm like, I did not do like a third of that. You know, so how do you build in systems that account for the planning fallacy? One, one idea is you build slack into your calendar. So I try to like have an afternoon on Friday from two to four. This is open for all the stuff I didn't get done this week that I thought I would get done, you know? Yeah. So kind of create an expect, you know, create that, that system that recognizes 
that we overestimate what we can do. And that also there's always going to be emergencies and always uh, sort of unpredictable things that, that pop up. But the other thing is, you know, when you take that pause, you set your priorities, you know, you, you, the brain dump is like you get everything out on paper that you think you should do. So, so it lives somewhere. So it can, it, it, it's not living in your head, but then don't take that as your to-do list. You know, really look at mm. that and think, okay, this one thing is what I really need to do today. So you're not trying to do 72 things. You're trying to do mm-hmm. one. And then when you get that one thing done, your day is a win. So you don't always mm. feel behind. You don't always feel like you're rushing. Mm. You don't always feel like you're inadequate. You know, so so that's not just for women. That's pretty universal. We all human beings do that. Mm. But the other thing for women is to recognize you do not have to earn leisure time. You are not being selfish. It is really critical for your well-being and your health to have time off. Hmm. Oh, I love it. We all need to hear that, don't we? I love your um, the analogy of your, would you give your, your art gallery analogy? I mean, I, I think about, I really think about my day now thinking like, okay, could, would you, would you share that? Yeah. And I have to say, this was not my idea. And I, hopefully I, you know, when you heard me say that, I, I, I attribute this to a behavioral scientist that I, um, that I interviewed for a piece I worked on. And what he said, again, it just, it's one of those things. There's some things that people say that just really hit you. This one really hit uh-huh. me. And so we were also talking about work-life balance and time and, you know, how we could use behavioral science to try to understand that. That's a part of a big project I've been working on the last few years. And he did say, start, you know, and it's helped him and it helps me a lot. Start thinking about your calendar, your time. We tend to think about it like a, like a crammed pantry, you know, like, a, like how many more things can we cram in there and then and have this weird sense of pride. Look at all this stuff I got in here. And, and yet, you know, then you open the doors and you have a, the, the threat of all of it falling down and, you know, it's precarious. It's too much. Start thinking about your time and your calendar more like an art gallery. You know, be intentional about what you choose to do and where you put it. And then most importantly, make sure that there's space between things, you know? And so think about that. Like oh, now, that, we're, love that. now that we're all, you know, so many of us are remote and we're back to back to back Zoom meetings. You know, schedule schedule white space in between because you're going to need to be able to digest what just happened. Maybe you need to do a few things to close yeah. the loop, take a breath, go walk around the block, and then come back into the next one. You know, the the back to back to back to back that you know, and then you get to the end of the day, and now you can't remember all the things that you promised that you do. So then your work spills into the evening, and then you feel guilty because you're not with your family, and then you know, and then you start the day at a deficit. So. So think about that, creating space in your day. Yeah, it's such a good, it's such a good message. Um, You know, another, another myth you describe is this, um, or really this, I guess maybe this isn't a a myth, but the fact that people wear busyness as this badge of honor, and you talk about the, heard you mention like Christmas cards in the sixties was like peace, love and joy, and then Christmas cards and our time or like, let me show you, I've been to Moab, I've been to the islands. And we, this is the 25 athletic activities of my children. And, you know, it's like, so unbelievably, not only do we jam pack our lives, but, but we were sort of proud of it. I also would love for you to talk about the, the, the phenomenon of tunneling Mm -hmm. and you sort of just touched on it. Yeah. So they're, they're related 
Um, so busyness is something that I, I wrote a lot about in the first book um, mm-hmm. and spent some time, as you mentioned, with this really fantastic researcher at, um, in North Dakota, of all places. I wanted to see who was studying busyness. And this woman in North Dakota was studying. I remember calling her. I was like, what? North Dakota? Don't you just like sit on your porch and, you know, relax? And, and she's like, you know, oh, honey, you want to meet some overwhelmed people? You know, I can I can introduce you to some North Dakotans who are pretty overwhelmed. I remember that because she like showed up and she went through traffic. Oh, Is that the same they, one? Well, no, it's the same story. So this, this researcher, Ann Burnett, put together a focus group that I got to sit in on. And one woman came rushing into the focus group and she was just like, and I was double booked and I had this to do and that to do. And then I got stuck in traffic, you know, and I live in the Washington DC area where, you know, I would get stuck in traffic and then I'd have to end up paying money because I'd be late for the childcare pickup. You know, it was incredibly <laughs> stressful and terrible traffic, you know, one accident and backs up for miles. And, uh, you know, I look out the window, it's like, I, this is like Fargo, North Dakota. It's a beautiful little place. It's like, I saw one traffic light in cornfield. It's like, I don't know that there's a whole lot of traffic here. And so what Anne's contentious was, contention was, which is so interesting, and she she's done that by studying holiday letters and she, you know, over the years and really seeing how in, in the culture, and again, he, she gets letters from the Midwest. So this is not like East Coast, you know, kind of busy elites, which is kind of what I always thought. You know, this is this is sort of heartland culture that that we have made busyness not only a badge of honor, but sort of the price of admission. That this is mm. how we show our worth. Look at how busy I am. Look at how much I can do. Look at how much I can do in a day. Look at how much stuff I can cram into my pantry and my can- in my calendar. And so her contention is because it's become such a cultural um, marker that we can often create busyness when it doesn't really exist. We can create that sense of breathlessness. Look at, you know, and so why that's important, because when you make that uh, a cultural priority, what ends up happening is sort of the second phenomenon you're asking to asking about. And again, it's from behavioral science. It's called tunneling. And when you feel that it's, it usually comes from scarcity. So when there's a sense of scarcity, uh, it actually came out of poverty research, looking at like um, what happens when people are, are have scarcity of money. And they were looking at sugarcane farmers and, and kind of measuring their IQ at different times of year, like once right after the harvest is sold. And then once later, you know, as the money gets, gets tight, you know, and they measured IQ and saw that when money is scarce, the IQ drops like 13 points. That sense that, you know, so what ends up happening is um, you become, you know, and think about it with time, you know, time is scarce, money is scarce. You have that sense of panic or that busyness sets in. And then you you literally get tunnel vision. You are not no longer able to think creatively or you don't have, you're not calm enough to sort of imagine that there are other solutions. And so what, what ends up happening like with the time and busyness you're really only think about it, what it looks like to look to, to be in a tunnel. You can only see a few steps ahead of you. And so what happens at work when you're feeling overstressed and, and busy, uh, you tend to focus on just what's, what's right in front of you. So a lot of people, that means they go to their email. Oh my God, I need to feel busy. So I'm just going to answer all these emails without recognizing, well, that, that might not be, you know, your main priority. Uh, so in a lot of the research that we've done, uh, people get to the end of their day, they've felt really busy, they've been answering emails, they've been running to meetings, but they haven't started that one thing they really wanted to get to. And so then, yeah, again, then work spills into the evenings or into the weekends, and then you build up resentment, and then you get tired, and then you don't have time for your family, and then you just feel like you're a work drone. 
So, so, so that's an interesting thing that, that, that the busyness culture reinforces a way of working that continually keeps you busy because you don't make the time and sort of like in the art gallery, you don't make the space to do your most important work first mm-hmm. so that then you mm-hmm. really would be able to turn, you know, turn things off and you could set a boundary mm-hmm. and then you could have your life. Mm. Love that. Your, um, gosh, there's so many things I'd love to talk to you about. Okay. One thing that I thought I found different from your book than from when I heard you speak recently was your, your discussion of millennials. You were in the book, um, and again, it's been 2014, you, you published mm-hmm. it. So probably the research is, you know, maybe eight years older or something that, that you were hoping millennials and, you know, I guess most people use like 1981 to 96 kind of birth years. So those folks are, you know, some of them are, you know, about to turn 40. Right. You know, we think so. In my mind, millennials are still, you know, 19 no, years old. They're, and they're, they're, they're not. Yeah. yeah. My brother, I have a brother who he's actually 79. Some authors will use 79 as, as a start, but anyway, um, your book mentioned that you were hoping that maybe millennials were going to come into the workforce and they were going to change this Iron Man culture, FaceTime. And, and then when I recently heard you talk, you, you seem to have changed your thinking in terms of the research actually showing that might not have happened because they're entering as the low man on the totem pole, unable to change the culture. Is that something that you're you're seeing? Well, I think, you know, when you go back to my book, I think there was a hope there. There wasn't really, it was more of a hope, you know, and, and I, you know, there, there, no doubt that there's, there's still that hope. Um, I think that what the research shows that I think is so interesting is, you know, I, I think a lot of people hoped that millennials would come in and say, we want work-life balance because they were saying that it was so important to them, you know, and that they would act on it. And there is anecdotal evidence that they do, they walk away, they walk away more than previous generations did, or, or at least some portion of them. But over time, you know, things, you know, and, and this is always the thing about, you know, uh, social science research, it's always a little bit, there's always a bit of a lag, you know, we don't, sure. we don't really understand what's happening in the moment. And so what's ended up happening, and not surprisingly, is that uh, culture is powerful. And so you can, you know, enter a culture and have every intention of having work-life balance or that you'll walk away or, uh, and then you get caught up in the culture and to succeed, you end up, you know, working to the norm or you end up working as the leadership does. And a lot of leadership are, uh, are men who have at-home wives or they have other people who, um, uh, you know, they can out, they can afford to outsource everything. They can have a life, but they're not responsible for doing a lot of the care. So they work all the time. And so what's ended up happening for many, you know, and again, I think that there's still a lot of research to, to that's still unfolding. All of that is to say it has not been this generational revolution. Mm. And one of the reasons that I think it's interesting to look at why is that what millennials said they wanted when, when we bothered to ask what other generations wanted, it's what they wanted too. Baby boomers mm-hmm. wanted work-life, flow, balance, harmony, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it, time for work, time for life, time for play. Gen X wants the same things. Millennials, you know, Gen Z wants it. So I think that it's really, I think what ended up happening is we began to look more broadly and see these are really human desires. And here's another generation that isn't able to like bring it off. And so mm-hmm. that's my question that I'm asking, why not? And what's it going to take? Oh, so interesting. I can't wait. 
I love your discussion in the book of a woman, um, Kathy Corman Frey. Some call her the confidence guardian. Frey is adamant that what keeps so many women running ragged and out of time and that um and that most that most of us have yet to develop the skill of confidence or what she calls self-efficacy. And then you go on to say that, you know, self-efficacy is the final frontier for some for, for women. Yeah, that's that's Kathy's view. And you know, and, and Kathy's great. I, I love her. I love her research. And I think it's important. However, it's not, I think what's important to keep in mind, um, yes, to have that sense of self-efficacy, you know, again, that sense of like, I'm going to create my own story. I'm going to push back against these cultural expectations. That is important. That is something that women, that all people need to do. I think what's, what's also important to recognize that it is not only confidence, you know, then you end up falling into what, uh, you know, many have called the fix the woman issue or the blame yes. the woman. The idea that if only women had confidence, if only women could negotiate, if only women did this, if only women did that, everything would be fine. And I think what I'm really trying to, you know, in my books and in my research is to really show, you know, that it's not, it's, it, this is not women's fault. This is not. It's more of a system it, problem. It, there, are, there are a lot of systems problems, just, it, not just a personal exactly. problem. And so, so the, so what's important and like what you do about that is that you look at, to change the larger systems, you look to change mm. the work cultures, you look to change the policy. Mm. And then you also have to recognize that that takes time. So what can I do right here and right now? And that there are, are the, there are, you know, things that you can do, self-efficacy, agency, there are choices that you can make, there are different ways of thinking, you know, that's honestly the only thing we can control. But think Mm -hmm. about that more as putting on an oxygen mask to work for some larger change. Because individual change isn't the reason we got here. And it's not the Mm -hmm. only way out. Hmm. Um. The last, everyone needs a lot. There are several chapters. Everyone has to read chapter nine, Cult of Intensive Motherhood. Unbelievable. I hope we're going to come out of COVID without that mentality. Frankly, I think there could be some nice change there. Um, The last chapter, Finding Time. I love a quote from Carl Sandburg that you end your book with. It says, time is the coin of your life. You spend it. Do not allow others to spend it for you. And would you remind all of us this idea that that time time is power time is power and you know uh, how are you going to use that power how are you going to define your life it, you know that's really all we've got time and attention are our most precious resources and um, how do we spend it and you know, just go go back to the idea of like when you're in the tunnel and you're doing your email. If you know, and I struggle with this, but if you have a clean inbox and you haven't done your most important things, then you have made everybody else's priorities you put them ahead of your own. And so these are some of the things to be thinking about. And like going back to taking that moment of pause and getting clear on what is it that you want? What is it that how do you want to spend your time? What do you want it to mean? Uh, and and even if it's not clear, because it's like that's going to take time to figure out. And how do you listen to yourself? And how do you how do you trust yourself? And you know, and especially if you're pushing back against some very powerful cultural forces, or you've got a spouse that doesn't believe you. But take that time to pause, get clear on yourself, you know, and then and create those windows of time to do with it as you will. 
whether it is to to you know to do some meaningful work, whether it is to connect with other people with love, whether it is to take a moment of leisure, a moment of leisure, and, and to you know and to play or to rest or to do nothing, you know that there's a real um, there's a real value in in idleness, in daydreaming that may have nothing to do with work or love, but is that is worth doing because it is simply human. So take that time, you know, and I know that, that people feel like I have no time, you know, it, it can be five minutes, it can be 10 minutes, it, it doesn't have to be you don't have to go to India and live in a cave to become enlightened, you know, you just don't. <laughs> Most people don't have that kind of time. But can you take 10 minutes? You know, can you take five breaths, three deep breaths is enough to change your, you know, your brain chemistry. You know? your physiology. Yeah. Um, near the end of your book, you talk about how things change. This is a fascinating discussion about when their time horizon shortens. So as they grow older or diagnosed with a terminal illness, they're told they only have several years to live. It actually, you're, you, you talk about how it can be emotionally harder to have a vast time horizon as we do as young adults. And to quote you, um, as our time horizons grow shorter, we start to see the world differently. We start to see what matters most are often the simple things, the smell of roses, watching your grandchildren splash in a puddle, the smile on the face of an old friend you're meeting for coffee. It's those little moments that you start to focus on. And, you know, rereading this um, made me think about, you know, this pandemic. And on some level, it shortened my time horizon in the sense, that, for example, my my oldest child is, is 13 and she turned 13 in March. So she will have spent her 13th year kind of like in a pandemic, you know, quarantine or whatever we want to call it. Um, and I'm just, I'm realizing that not, not that this year has been a waste, but it kind of feels like time is slipping through my fingers. Mm -hmm. This this whole pandemic is going on for so long, and um and in in in, in a good way, I, I I feel there this coming out of it as this okay, I'm not going to waste it. You never know what's going to happen. Right. Look what look where the world mm -hmm. is. Thank you for that that time horizon um, discussion. Beautiful. Yeah, and again, I'm a reporter, so it's not. I, I just, I just interviewed a whole lot of smart people who are doing some really great research about that, which I thought was so beautiful and so interesting. Because we tend to think, as you get older, that it's, it, you know, it's about decline and and illness and ill health and and depression, and to find that there's actually more wisdom and more happiness, more sense of satisfaction. That there's actually research that shows that because you know, you know, it's that sense that you really do fully appreciate how finite time is and how precious it is. And so that even those the the small moments of, uh, you know, looking out and seeing a blue sky can fill you with happiness. And it's like, you know, that there's real beauty in that. You are, um, you are just wonderful. I, I really appreciate your, your talking to me. Thank you so very much. And we will, um, my women's group and others who listen to this are going to benefit so much from, from hearing your words and wisdom. And yes, you say these are other people's can, some of them are other people's sort of ideas. You put all of this together and offered it to the world. So thank you. It is really, really really beautiful thing. Well, you, so. you have your daughter to thank because I think she reached out to me sort of like, this is what, this is uh, coming out of nowhere, but I want to give my mom a really nice Mother's Day present. So how could I say no to that? Yeah, I absolutely don't have time. I'm, I am busy. I'm trying to like work full time and I got, you know, trying to write a book, but I'm like, wow, how can you say no to such a beautiful, beautiful daughter's request?
You're so sweet to remember that. Well, gosh, well, thank you so much. Wonderful to speak with you and hope to maybe meet you one day in person. That sounds great and happy belated Mother's Day. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it took me a little while to get this on the calendar, didn't it? A little bit going on, right? Okay, thank you so you much. Bye-bye now. Bye. Guys, I could have interviewed her for another at least two more hours. I had so many other things I wanted to ask her. But anyway, in conclusion, I just wanted to highlight a couple of topics. Uh, I'll start with a few from the book itself and then move on to some of the ideas uh, that she spoke about here. Um, first of all, there's this concept of uh, that she uses called time confetti. And I think it's a great visual where you can imagine the splintering of our time that happens when we are checking email and texting and doing several things at once that ends up, as she describes, splintering our time into these tiny little pieces. And that winds up giving us this feeling of time famine or lack of time. And it leads to the concept that she talked about here, which is that of contaminated time, where your brain is always churning on these various bits of material. Um, another helpful concept is that of um, the brain dump. And it's very simple. Take all the things that are swirling around in your head and write them down somewhere. And they then live there and not in your brain. And as she said, that doesn't necessarily become your to-do list. It certainly doesn't become your to-do list for the next day, but it allows you to decrease that mental load that so many of us carry with us, and it, it lessens that that burden. Um, and then some of her recommendations for this time confetti and um, and multitasking issue that we all face is what she calls chunking time and working in what she calls pulses. And so what she recommends in the book is to start out with 30 minutes of, of these pulses and work up to the ideal, and researchers will say the ideal amount is 90 minutes if you can work up to that, where you turn everything else off, your phone, your email, and you just focus on one thing. And, you know, we've all read so much about this myth of multitasking in various places. And I, I just think it's so important for it's so important for me to remember that, you know, that you have to be proactive in order to prevent multitasking. Otherwise, you're going to be, there's your phone there chiming at you all day long. Another concept is that of this, the notion of the ideal worker. And and one thing that I wanted to um just emphasize is that if you're still listening to this podcast, there's no doubt you are a hard worker. And and I certainly, I, I define myself that way. And, you know, her point is not that we shouldn't work hard. Her point is that we really, and this is in the book, is that we need to work smarter. She said that as the number of hours of go up, go up and as we, as we do things like multitasking, um, and if there's needless FaceTime at work, for example, as those hours tick along, we actually be become less productive and that healthy workers actually do better. They, they, you know, they sleep better, 
They have better collegiality when they're happier. Happy workers are more productive. Diverse teams, and this is a different topic, diverse teams, she talks about, they're smarter. They make better decisions. Groups that have more women in them, the research shows they actually work smarter. There is greater emotional intelligence when you have both genders in working groups. When people can authentically share, when there's good collegiality and camaraderie, they actually come to better outcomes. Another concept that I I wish we had gotten to was her use of the term well-being instead of wellness. So she talks about how when businesses use the word wellness initiatives, as an example, that, that usually means yoga at lunch or smoking cessation, but that it absolves the system of responsibility. And she really wants us to recognize that we don't have a mass of collective failures in this country. And then to restate something so important is that she believes our most precious resources are time and attention and that we cannot manage time, but we can manage our expectations and priorities and what are the things that are our real priorities. We need to know what those are and have honest expectations of ourselves. And, you know, to, to quote Patrick Wyman, historian Patrick Wyman, crises like pandemics don't break things in and of themselves. They show you what's already broken. That's from his Twitter. She so eloquently talked here about our crippled childcare systems as well as gender and racial inequity. And she talked about the great divide now between Main Street and, and Wall Street. And, you know, I'm reminded of that word apocalypse during this uh, pandemic, which again means the uncovering and what these times are revealing. It's like we're looking under the, the sheets of our society, so to speak. Anyway, I'm so excited for her next book. It sounds like it's going to be called We Just Learned a Work in Progress. And so we're going to have to look out for that one. And thank you so much for listening and giving this podcast both your time and attention, which, as she said, are our most valuable resources. Thanks, as always, to Russell Kelly for sound and music production. And thanks, everybody, for being with me. 